Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, an archive of Robert Lewis's sermons while at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you are encouraged and deepen in your love of Christ while enjoying this podcast. Here is this week's message. You know, I want you to know as you turn over to 1 Kings 11, we're going to look at four chapters here this morning in our study of the Kings. But I want you to know at the outset that all of us, at least generally speaking, are shaped by three forces that are around us. One is the choices we make. And oftentimes when we preach and we talk about uh, principles of Scripture, uh, we are exhorting you and encouraging you to make the proper choices in faith. Every choice that you make, whether it's large or small, will shape you in some way and make a difference for good or for evil in your life. That's one of the potent forces in your life. A second potent force is the environment that we live in or that we've come from. Some of us have grown up in unhealthy environments. Some of us right now have chosen maybe some unhealthy environments to be in. They have a tremendous impact on our life. A third, though, is the heritage from which we've come. And here I speak of our ancestry. You know, these three forces, choices, environment, and ancestry, make a tremendous difference in who we are and what we become. The first two, our choices and environment, those are very clear to us. But oftentimes we don't think about the third, the heritage from which we have been birthed or sprung. Our forefathers and how what they did and how they lived impact us even to this day. But the truth of the matter is, we are all products of the past, aren't we? The mannerisms that you have, the talents that you possess, your looks, your interests, even some of the specific inclinations towards evil that you struggle with, your father and your grandfather and your great-grandfather, they struggle with those same things as well. To a degree, we even repeat some of the themes of our ancestors. Do you know that? This week while I was in Ruston caring for my mom and making the transition, by the way, successfully from the hospital to home, Sherrod and I had a chance uh, to go through some of the memorabilia, the family things that uh, my mom has kept all these years about our ancestors. And one of them I thought you might find uh, interesting. <clears throat> Since most of us are aware of the controversy that we had a year or so ago with Spectrum over there carrying those obscene 1-900 sex talk numbers, and as Steve Buell and I talked, Steve said that they had to do so for advertising money, and I said they didn't need to do so. They needed to be responsible to our community and to journalistic integrity. With that in mind, I thought you might like to hear part of the article that was written uh, about my grandfather in his death in 1931. Uh, he, by the way, was a newspaper man. Uh, he founded the uh, Ruston Daily Leader, the hometown newspaper in 1890. And he was the uh, publisher and editor there for 29 years. He was also the president of the Louisiana Press Association. But when he died, this is what they wrote about him. And I'm only quoting a, a small section, but I want you to listen and you might hear some themes of the past that are themes of the present. It says, Mrs. Mr. Lewis's range of influence was wide through his position. He ever stood on the right side of every forward movement and for all that meant community progress. He received personal letters of recognition from the Vice President of the United States and for, from other national officers for the high type of editorial publicity he contributed through the medium of his paper. Mr. Lewis always threw the column of his paper open to the service of any church or civic organization 
And probably one of the noblest acts of his career was his refusal to carry whiskey advertisements in his paper, which he did at the expense of turning down big revenues which he would have derived from their source. Well, I guess I have that controversy, that theme still flowing <laughs> in my veins. See, these are the forces that shape us. Our ancestry, our heritage, the choices that we make, our environment. But heritage plays a big part of it, whether you know or not. It'd be interesting to know what themes you're repeating from your ancestors. Now, here in the book of Kings, we'll focus this morning on Jeroboam, who, by the way, left a theme that every king after him of the northern kingdom repeated and would follow. They were part of his line. And I think all that goes to show you that no life is an island, regardless of what Simon and Garfunkel sung about years ago. <laughs> we are both products of the past, and you and the choices that you make are building a part of the future that others will live out, even this day. We are inextricably linked together in our humanity. Uh, the idea of individualism that is so rampant in American ideology is a myth. There's no such thing as living alone and influencing no one and doing what you want as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. That doesn't make sense. And the Scripture clearly dictates that. And though we cannot change the past, we can impact those around us and the future of those who come after us. So in that sense, I guess you could say like Jeroboam, we're leaders. The book of Kings is about leaders. But every person in this room is a leader. To someone, somewhere. First Kings eleven through fourteen tells us that we can make our leadership count, even though Jeroboam didn't. Now, what I have on your outline is five what I think are leadership principles that can shape your life and make a difference in somebody else. They're very important for the day in which we live, even as we've already talked about some in the sharing. But let me give you the first of those five principles. You can fill in the blanks as we go. The first is this, spiritual leadership is never just a step up. It's always also a corresponding step down as well. You see, the great danger of any leader is that he can get lost in his own power. That's very easy to do. And last week as Bill talked to us about Solomon, we saw that at the end of his reign, that is exactly what happened to him. Look in 1 Kings 11 in verses 26 and 28. 28. It says, Then Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephraimite, a Zerida, Solomon's servant, he was serving at that point in Solomon's court, whose mother's name was Zerah, a widow who rebelled against the king. Now this was the reason why he rebelled against the king. Solomon built the Milo and closed up the breach of the city of his father David. Now the man Jeroboam was a valiant warrior. And when Solomon saw that the young man was industrious, he appointed him over all the forced labor of the house of Joseph. Now that's how he started as one who was appointed an administrator over forced labor. But there came a place in Jeroboam's life where he saw that the way that King Solomon was leading was evil. It was going the wrong way, and so he rebelled against him. That's what these verses tell us. Now Solomon, as you remember, reigned 40 years. And the more he reigned, the more his reign was characterized by personal power than by personal service. I guess that maybe is another uh, 
reason for having term limitations, even back then, huh? But the longer he went, the more he was consumed by his own personal interests rather than the interest of the people. And eventually that power became intolerable. And, it, and to one man in particular, and that man is singled out here in chapter 11. His name is Jeroboam. It says in verse 26, if you'll notice, that he was an Ephraimite, one of the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, Ephraimites as a tribe historically had been people of leadership. It goes all the way back to their father, Joseph. Now, you remember Joseph, don't you? Of Egyptian fame, the CEO over all of Egypt for Pharaoh. He was a leader. But he wasn't the only leader of the Ephraimites. As time goes on, Joshua, the man who led the people into the Promised Land, he was an Ephraimite. Samuel, the first great prophet, the one who appointed the first king over Israel, he was an Ephraimite. And so in Jeroboam's ancestry was the blood of leadership. And he was a leader. And a very industrious one, it says, as well. Now he served in Solomon's court until, as verse 27 says, Solomon built the Milo. What was that? Well, according to other parts of Scripture, this was an extravagant and very unnecessary building project that Solomon undertook just to please one of his wives, his Egyptian wife in particular. And in these building projects, as he became consumed by them, he did so at the expense of the people, the wealth of the nation. He required forced conscription and even enslavement of many of the Israelites in order to do these things. And with the building of the Milo, as Jeroboam, with this heritage of leadership, and because he was appointed and in touch with the people that, that were being forced into this conscription, he began to see how, how this kingdom was going astray. And he rebelled. He saw Solomon as out of touch with the people. And so he rebelled, it says, and he left Jerusalem. Now as he's leaving Jerusalem, something happens that we pick up in verse 29. It says, as he came about about that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem, that the prophet Ahijah, the Shalonite, found him on the road. And Ahijah had clothed himself with a new cloak. And both of them were alone in the field. And then Ahijah took hold of this new cloak which was on him, and he tore it into twelve pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself ten pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon, and I will give you ten tribes. Now turn over to verse 37. He says, And I will take you, and you shall reign over whatever you desire, and you shall be king over Israel. And then it will be that if you listen to all that I command you, and walk in my ways, the same thing that he said to Solomon, and do what is right in my sight by observing my statutes and my commandments, as my servant David did, then I will be with you and will build an enduring house for you as I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. What an incredible claim he made to this young man. Something he made to no one else but to David, and that is I'll build you an enduring house. It's yours. All you have to do is believe in me and follow my commandments. Just trust in that. Now Solomon knew that Ahijah the prophet had said that to him. And if you look in verse 40, Solomon, because of the rebellion and this kind of prophecy, sought to put Jeroboam to death. And Jeroboam had to flee to Egypt for a time. Now after Solomon died, his son, his true son, Rehoboam, came to the throne and became king. 
Now remember I said that some of the forces that shape us are not only our ancestry, but our environment. And Rehoboam had grown up in this latter day in a home in which he had seen his dad define leadership as power only. And so when he became king over Israel, he became this one-sided leader who was blinded by power and void of any kind of service or responsibility to the people. He was a more exaggerated Solomon. That's why kids who grow up, by the way, in homes where they're abused and beaten, you would think that they would learn from that and then grow up and want to be the gentlest of a parent. But the reality is, is those very kids who grow up in abused homes are even more abusive to their kids and to their spouses. Such was Rehoboam. And look at his inaugural address as he takes office in 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 14 and 15. He comes to the people and he speaks to them according to the advice of the young men that Bill Parkinson talked about last week, saying, My father made your yoke heavy but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people. Totally out of touch, except with his own power, just like his dad. You know, nations fall, companies fail, marriages unravel when leaders who are called to lead see leadership only in terms of stepping up. If you think about our country today, so much of what we see today in our leaders is that very concept. Just stepping up without a corresponding stepping down. Notice when the people heard these words, the nation broke apart north and south. Ahijah's prophecy suddenly begins to be fulfilled. Notice in verse 16, when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king saying, well, then what portion do we have in David? In other words, it's not worth it to follow you. We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Now look after your own house, David. So Israel departed to their tents. There was this massive rebellion. And look at verse 20. And it came about when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, that they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. None but the tribe of Judah followed after Rehoboam in the house of David. So now the kingdom is split north and south. There's a massive tragedy of a nation splitting apart. And it all revolves around a very simple concept of leadership and a misconception of leadership. And that is to lead means just to step up only. You know the massive splitting up of homes today that you see everywhere around you? Husband and wife. Many of those tearings are because men have misunderstood what it means to lead. One of the reasons I wrote the book, Rocking the Rolls, some of you have read that, but one of the reasons I wrote that book was to get across, not only to husbands, but to wives as well, the concept of leadership that the Scripture, the scripture constantly emphasizes. And that is, for every step up in the leadership, there is a corresponding step down in humility. Both must occur at the same time. It's a very delicate process to lead. To step up as a husband means to step down as well in humility. That kind of stepping, though, creates a tension. It's kind of hard to balance yourself when you're stepping up and stepping down at the same time, doesn't it? 
But that's what leadership requires, at least from a biblical point of view. The minute leadership becomes power only, that absolute power corrupts absolutely. Doesn't it? And that's what you see in the life here of Rehoboam. This incredible corruption that takes place because he didn't understand that it also requires being in touch with the people, stepping down in their lives, knowing what they need, caring about their hurts. Part of the massive tide of social change that occurred after World War II was because men saw leadership in terms of power only. And they went from being heads to headaches in the, in the process. Rehoboam forgot what leadership meant. His dad trained him to be a certain kind of leader, and in becoming a leader who stepped up only, he lost his kingdom. The same way that men, when they step up only, lose their families as well. It's a good principle of leadership. And when you lose your family, you not only just hurt yourself, but you hurt a future generation as well. And many of us in this room are products of those broken homes. And we carry the wounds and the scars from that. Leadership, not just a step up, but a corresponding step down. Then there's a second principle, and that's this. Spiritual leadership is not just creative innovations, but it's also a courageous believing. Now that the kingdom's suddenly been divided, Jeroboam finds himself leading a brand new nation. Something like America when it broke from England. All of a sudden, there's unlimited possibilities by being this new nation. And so Jeroboam now has the opportunity to right the wrongs of Solomon and of Jeroboam. He's an industrious leader, as we saw back in chapter 11. And so he sets forth with this great energy that he possesses to remake his kingdom. And for a time, he starts out right, although we're only given one verse in that regard. Look at verse 25. It says, Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and he lived there. And he went out from there, and he, bent, and he built Penuel. Now, those two places don't mean much to us. But if we had a real solid rooting in the Old Testament and the events that occurred in those two places, they mean a lot. Shechem was the first place that Abraham camped when he went out to this new land that God said he would give him, Palestine. And when he got in Shechem, it was there in Shechem that he built an altar to God and worshipped the living God. Penuel was a place that Jacob wrestled with God when God renamed him Israel, the name that the northern kingdom would take when he said that God would preserve his life. Now the reason he goes to those two places and builds them up and rebuilds them it's because he's trying to anchor this new nation to its spiritual roots. Trying to bring them back to the past. Saying that those things are important. But as an innovator, and in seeking to give his people a new start, in time his innovations go too far. And that's the very next verse, verses 26 and 27. It says, And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will return to the house of David. We don't know how long it occurred before he said this. But he says, if this people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will return to their Lord, even to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Now the Mosaic law said that Jerusalem was to still be the place of worship for all people, all the Jews. The problem was Jerusalem was now in the southern kingdom. 
and this industrious, creative, innovative leader, as he tries to get his people anchored, suddenly becomes fearful that if the people keep going down yearly to feast in Jerusalem, that somehow over time they'll want to either reunite the kingdom or they'll turn their hearts to this ungodly king, Rehoboam. And so at this point, Rehoboam faces a very crucial test, and here's what it is. He could either believe the promise that God made to him through Ahijah the prophet back in chapter 11. Remember the, the promise? If you'll keep my commandments, that's all you need to do. I will build for you an enduring house. I will give you the kingdom of Israel. Sure, you'll just trust me. Or, he could either believe that, or he could trust in his innovative abilities to somehow protect himself. Those were his choices. Now look at verse 28, and here's his decision. So the king consulted, actually in Hebrew it says, the king consulted with himself, not with anybody else, with himself. And here's what he did. He made two golden calves, and he said to them, it is too much for you people to go up to Jerusalem. Behold your gods, O Israel, that brought you up from the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. By the way, I've been to that temple in Dan. The ruins are still there up in northern Israel. stood in the temple area that Jeroboam built. Now notice in verse 30 it says, Now this thing became a sin for the people. For the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan. And he made houses on high places and made priests from among all the peoples who were not of the sons of Levi. And Jeroboam even instituted a feast in the eighth month on the fifteenth day of the month, like the feast which was in Judah. And he went up to the altar, and thus he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves which he had made. And he stationed in Bethel the priests of the high places which he had made. Now this guy is really innovative. Now, a lot of commentators will tell you he was not trying to draw the people away from the worship of Yahweh, the Lord God, even when he made those golden calves. But rather, what he was trying to do is come up with some alternative way to solve the fears that he had, to create a nation in and of itself where it wouldn't need to interact with the other nation, but it could still worship God. But in order to do that, he had to become innovative innovative to the place that he actually went against the commandments of God because of his great fear that the people would defend. You know, that's the same way with us. Did you know every one of us, maybe even this week, you're going to come to a place in your life where you are faced with a choice. It's a crossroads. And the choice is this. You can either obey God, but in obeying God, there's some fearful unknowns. There are some places that you have to step up where you're not in control anymore. You're just trusting God to deliver on His promises. Or you can take a second path, and that second path is to come up with some hybrid, innovative, creative way to solve your problem. Even if it means, at points, going against the will of God and compromising. Every one of us are going to face it. But how we choose will impact us for the rest of our life. See, we think those choices, you know, they can just be easily overcome. No, we are setting our sails every day to be godly or to be sometimes just merely innovators. But real leadership, the kind that affects people, is not just innovation. 
Sometimes it just comes down to radically and courageously believing what God has said and trusting in that. You know, there are a lot of denominations in churches today who are radically overhauling the Scripture because they're fearful that if they don't, people will defect. They overhaul in real creative ways the miracles of the Bible because they fear that the intellectuals will defect. They overhaul many of the statements that are talked about male leadership because they're afraid the feminists will defect. They overhaul in creative ways all the sexual standards of the Scripture because they're afraid young people will defend. Don't you read that every day? Haven't you seen that? And so they come up with all these creative ways and a lot of intellectual, or should I say pseudo-intellectual jargon that makes them sound like they're on both sides of the fence for the Bible, but they've come up with these creative ways to escape its standards, thinking that if they do that, people will come. Now let me ask you, do they? Does God bless that? Take a look. Take a look at the statistics. When we go against God's Word, when we come up with what we think are creative innovations to Scripture, I'm talking on a religious plane, those churches don't grow. They shrink. And look around the country where those who teach radically the Word of God and tenaciously in the face of culture, where that Word is proclaimed, those churches grow. That's not by accident. But here's Jeroboam thinking that somehow he could come up with this creative way to hold on to his kingdom and not just believe God's word radically. And in the end, you know what happens, don't you? Of course, he loses it. Just like you'll lose if you think that leading is just innovation. It's not innovation only. It's also courageous believing. Spiritual leadership is not just about coalitions. It's also about convictions. In chapter 13, we read about a young prophet who comes now that this northern kingdom has compromised itself under the leadership of Jeroboam. And it says, Now behold, there was a man of God from Judah who came from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord while Jeroboam was standing by the altar to burn incense. Jeroboam's now going to be the great leader of this uh, uh, dedication of this new temple in Bethel. And he cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord, and he said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and on you he, he shall sacrifice the priest of the high places who burn incense on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. Now, just by word of history, he calls Josiah by name. He says that one day these fake altars will be torn down by Josiah, but Josiah doesn't show up for another 300 years. Yet he calls him by name. Then he gave a sign the same day saying, this is the sign which the Lord has spoken. He gave a long-term prophecy and it is true of prophets. He gives a short-term one. Behold, the altar shall be split apart and the ashes which are on it shall be poured out. That's how you'll know I'm telling the truth. Now it came about when the king heard the saying of the man of God which he cried out against the altar in Bethel that Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar saying, seize him. But his hand which he stretched out against him dried up so that he could not draw it back to himself. The altar also was split apart and the ashes were poured out from the altar according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. And the king answered and said to the man of God, Please entreat the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. So the man of God entreated the Lord 
and the king's hand was restored to him, and it became as it was before. And the king said to the man of God, Come home with me and refresh yourself, and I will give you a reward. But the man of God said to the king, If you were to give me half your house, I would not go with you, nor would I eat bread or drink water in this place. For so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall eat no bread, nor drink water, nor return by the way which you came. So he went another way and did not return by the way which he came to Bethel. Now, that's a long story, but let me tell you some principles here. Maybe by way of illustrating, you know, this week I read in Time Magazine, Time Magazine an intensely interesting article entitled, Why Washington Doesn't Work. It told about a Republican senator, Warren Rudman. By the way, he's considered by me to be one of the most influential senators in Congress. And the article was about why he's quitting Congress. And they asked him why. And he said, because even though we politicians know what to do about our nation's problems, we simply are afraid to do it. And so we as citizens watch our politicians endlessly build coalitions rather than having convictions. It took a lot of conviction for this young man who was in the south, the southern kingdom, to go to the northern kingdom and to tell Jeroboam he was a compromiser. But this young man had conviction about God's word. He was willing to stand up to his culture, even a foreign one, and he went. And yet even with the withering judgment on Jeroboam's outstretched hand, and even the later miracle of the healing of it, if you'll notice, Jeroboam does not repent. But you know what he does? He acts just like a politician. Look there. In verse 7, he tries to build a coalition, a connection with this young man, thinking, well, if I have you too, then everything will be okay. Let's build a coalition. Come and join me. Stay here for a while. But the young man refuses the compromise. You know, we live in a day where tolerance is the supreme virtue. And any kind of conviction is seen as narrow-minded backwardness. That's why we have few leaders today. It's because leaders must have conviction to lead. Politicians just build coalitions. Leaders lead. And it takes courage to lead. You see, we live in a day where it is time to stand up. It's time to do what this young man did. It's time to say to someone else, you know, that's wrong. It's time to say to someone, that's evil. That's a perversion. That's not even close. But see, if we won't do that, if we shrink back, then we're no different than the very leaders sometimes we criticize. We're wanting safety and coalitions. But you can never impact the future with safety. You can never make a difference by just building coalitions. Spiritual leadership is not just about coalitions. Spiritual leadership is about having convictions and the willingness to stand for them. And not do that is to join Jeroboam's house, which this young man refused to do. Now, I wish we could stop there and say that this young man had a good ending, but he didn't. What happens, and we won't read verses 11 
through 24, but what happens is this young man leaves, and as he leaves, he's met by an old prophet. And this old prophet asks for him to stay and come in and eat and drink with him. But remember, this young man was told not to eat or drink, but to obey the Lord and to go all the way back to his home. But the old prophet, this compromised prophet who lived up in this northern kingdom, he says to this young prophet in verse 18, Listen, I'm a prophet like you, and an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring this prophet back to your house that he may eat bread and drink water. And then it adds, But he lied to this young prophet. Well, the young prophet buys into what this particular older prophet says, and he goes and eats with him. And as a result of that, when he finally leaves the old prophet's house in verse 24, a lion meets him on the way and kills him. <laughs> Ain't that a bizarre story? I mean, here this guy stood up for God, went all the way to Judah, stood up for God, and now, in this little impulsive act, he gets killed for it. Seems a bit harsh, doesn't it, in its judgment? At least it did to me. But there's a principle here. It's one that we need to understand, and it's this. Spiritual leadership is not just about daring public acts, but it's also about the private details of life. Being daring and being courageous, that's a quality that God seeks. But He seeks something greater than that. And that's faithfulness, not only in the big things, but in the little things, in the private as well as the public arenas of life. And that's where this young prophet failed. One even wonders if he assumed that since he had been so bold in doing God's will that day, that somehow, now that he was out of town and out of sight of Jeroboam, with mission accomplished, that he couldn't somehow just let his hair down and do what he wanted. I mean, he had been spiritual. He had done his duty. Now maybe he could just fudge a little. You ever feel that way? Sure you do. Ever come to a place where you've really served God and maybe you've really stepped out? Now that you've done that service, you come to a place in your life where you say, now that I've done that, I can kind of let my hair down and do what I want? That's why this spiritual principle is so important because it's the little things that bring us down, not the big things. That's what brought this young man down. He drew this distinction that we often draw. He separated public Christianity from private lifestyle. And what God wants is both. He doesn't draw those distinctions. He sees it all as one whole. And what He requires is faithfulness if you're going to have a real impact. And this young man played with his life. Maybe I should ask you the question I had to ask myself. Is your Christianity public and private? When you leave Little Rock, is that the time to leave your Christianity? I think if we're all honest, sometimes when we go on a trip, all of a sudden it's time to be who I want to be. Do what I want to do. Sin where I want to sin. This principle says no. No. There's inevitable judgment even there. And you lose that which you sought to gain in public. And that brings us to a fifth and final principle, and it's found in chapter 14. Let me move through it pretty quick here because our time's about away, and that's this. Spiritual leadership is never about just the one. It's always about the many. You see, a leader by definition is one who has followers. 
And any time a leader fails, people around them are going to be injured in the process. And as I said at the beginning, everyone here is a leader. There's a coworker that looks to you. There's a friend or family member that looks to you. Maybe you're a parent over several children that look to you. Everyone is a leader. And every day you are affecting, influencing, impacting the lives of those people that you are the king of. And what legacy will you leave for them? In chapter 14, it says, At this time, Abijah, the son of Jeroboam, became sick. And Jeroboam said to his wife, Arise now and disguise yourself, so that they may not know that you are the wife of Jeroboam. And go to Shiloh, and behold, Ahijah the prophet, remember the one who said he was going to be the king, is there, who spoke concerning that I would be king over the people. Go and talk to him. Entreat him. Build another coalition. Make this spiritual connection and somehow he can deliver us. Now evidently, this young man, this son of Jeroboam, was the apple of his eye. Fact is, when we get to verse 13 of this same chapter, it says of this young man that he alone was someone who was good in the sight of God. And he's become sick. And now... Jeroboam, seeing that this is beyond his control, you know, wants to seek somehow, some way, a spiritual person to bring about a healing. Does that ring a bell? People do that all the time, by the way. What I think is going on here with both the prophet that was killed and now with the sickness of this innocent son is that God is trying to graciously get Jeroboam's attention and bring him to repentance. Here's what I want you to hear. Because this principle is played out many times in Scripture. It is not beyond God to sacrifice good people to try to redeem evil people. God used Pharaoh's son as a sacrifice to try to bring Pharaoh to repentance. He didn't, but he tried. God used the young son of David and Bathsheba to bring David to repentance. And he did. And now here in this situation, as much as this is beyond our comprehension, but see, death is not that big a deal to God. He takes the one righteous member of Jeroboam's household and sacrifices him, brings on him an illness that will later end in his death in order to try to reclaim this failing, selfish king. That's a scary thought, isn't it? That God might use people that we care about to finally knock on the door of our heart to get attention and say, it's time to wake up. Unfortunately, Jeroboam didn't. And so when Jeroboam's wife comes back, if you'll notice, to the city and entered, verse 17, the child dies. And then it says in verse 18, and all of Israel buried him and mourn for him according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke through the servant Ahijah the prophet. And it says, Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam, how he made war and how he reigned, behold, they are written in the books of the Chronicles and of the Kings, and it tells about his reign of 22 years. But now look up in verse 16. But this is the epitaph of his reign. And that is, because of the account of the sins of Jeroboam which he committed, he made Israel to sin. He made Israel to sin. 
What a terrible legacy. Here's a guy who was told that if he just simply would obey God, he would have an enduring house, a kingdom over which his family would reign. And yet at the end, his legacy is not that at all. His legacy is that he was the man who made Israel sin. Now there are 19 kings that follow him in the northern kingdom. Not one of them will be good, and every one of them will have this legacy. At the end of the conclusion of each of those 19 kings, it'll say, and he walked in the way of Jeroboam. You know, when I mentioned my grandfather in the beginning, I think that we sometimes walk in the ways of our ancestors that we know not of. Your life will to some degree impact your posterity. How they'll come after you. What they'll lean towards. What their interest will be. And whether there'll be a seed of righteousness passed on. All this tells us that through one person, many people were injured because from a leader's standpoint, there's no private sin. From a leader's standpoint, sin always affects others. It always hurts others. It always destroys others. But here's the good news. Righteousness affects others too. Righteousness impacts others also. And there's not a person in this room that can't be in some way an effective leader that will influence someone else's future. But for you to do that, it will require a specific kind of leadership style. Not that of Jeroboam, but from the lessons of Jeroboam. It will require a leadership style that asks of you not just to step up, but also to step down. It will require of you a leadership style that is not only innovative, and there's nothing wrong with innovation, but it will never be innovation that goes beyond or transgresses on the sure and absolute and enduring Word of God. It will be a leadership style that doesn't rely on coalitions, but is led from within conviction. It'll be a leadership style that'll be faithful, not just in public, but when you leave town in private. It's unfortunate that 1 Kings, many of the stories in 1 Kings give us lessons of failure. But here's what I want you to know. There are lessons of failure there only for one reason. It's so that you and I might live lives of success. This is the way of the kings. Let's pray together. you for what we have seen in the life of a king who had such a promising beginning but who ended in failure. But his failure is our warning. And it asks of us not to shrink back, but in our own life to realize the tremendous impact that we have on the lives of others and to radically believe you, to trust you, to follow after you, knowing that we can't control life, but that you can. And if we but give ourselves to you, the difference that we see will be that as broad as that from east to west, from failure to success. Thank you, Lord, that Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. And regardless of what we see around us, even this day, in our day, if we but believe you, that abundant life will be ours. We praise you for that, O oh God, in Jesus' name.
Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.